This programme was produced at and first aired on NPR, Manawatu People's Radio, with support from New Zealand On Air. Kapai Irarangi Tomotu, NPR. If you're enjoying this podcast in Manawatu, you could make your very own, just like this one. NPR exists to help people like you tell your story or share your passion on air and online. Check out npr.nz for more information. For Local History Week, which spanned the end of February and the beginning of March 2023, Palmerston North City Library hosted a series of talks in the library. Manawatu People's Radio was there to provide technical support and also recorded these talks. This is the second of the four talks that we recorded. It's called Wire Happy, the Shannon Objectors Camps, 1942 to 1946. A warm welcome to you all here this afternoon. Thank you for joining us for the talk, Why Happy? The Shannon Objectors Camp 1942 to 1946. This talk was written by Margaret Tate, a former senior lecturer at Palmerston North College of Education and respected local historian. We are fortunate to have as our presenter, Leslie Courtney. Leslie Courtney has over 19 years of experience as the city archivist and heritage team leader for the Palmerston North City Library. Although she retired last year, it has been a somewhat working retirement, (laughs) as we still rely on her encyclopedic knowledge and expertise. She is a member of the Palmerston North Heritage Trust, an author and contributor to the back issue series of the Manawatu Standard. Some of you may be here after reading her article um, this last Saturday, and I recognise some faces from last night's Flax talk by Josh Reid as well. It's my pleasure to hand over to Leslie Courtney. Tracy? Um, Right, well, welcome. Thank you very much. Um, Once again, uh, a fascinating topic, and I say that, you know, just because uh, from my point of view, and I hope you will find so too. Um, Now, I've sort of vaguely amended it because Margaret did write this uh, talk a number of years ago um, under this title and I was originally just going to deliver her talk but like all good um, sort of researchers you start reading and you start fiddling and you do things so I have to say that it is heavily based on Margaret's research and her talk uh, but um, I have... um, I have put in some bits and pieces as well so uh, if you have any... I have to take some responsibility, I guess, for what is written here as well. Um, And it's mainly written about the actual men and the life that they had during World War II. Uh, As Margaret alluded to, there is another story as to why New Zealand, and perhaps particularly the Labour government, actually took this course of action uh, that saw the men incarcerated in these detention camps during World War II. But that is another talk and and another uh, piece of research, which this doesn't really touch on at all. So, uh, it's long forgotten, 
but by a few people now. The military uh, defaulter camps near Shannon are really a little-known part of our local history. Two camps were established as part of a number of camps built during World War II to house those who objected to being compelled to take part in war. Now, the two camps near Shannon uh, were Whitanui and Paiaka. And Paiaka was here on Springs Road, and Whitanui was just uh, on the Foxton Shannon Road. So, what's the story behind these camps and the men detained in them? And the root of the issue was, of course, conscription. Now, while the South African War had seen great patriotic fervour um, and volunteers came forward freely, during World War I and II, there was the issue of conscription. These wars were linked by this uh, common problem, what to do with those who objected in principle to taking part in war. In World War I, men who refused to serve were sent to prison, But in World War II, special camps were set up to hold the objectors, described as, to quote, a scheme of concentration camps designed to be less comfortable than the army, but less punitive than jail. And this was seen to be an improvement to what had happened in World War I. This was a New Zealand innovation and wasn't practised anywhere else in the world. In July 1940, conscription began and men between the ages of 18 and 40 were chosen by ballot for compulsory military service. As well, nine armed forces appeal boards were created to deal with appeals against serving. With the boards mainly made up of older, you know, conservative men and the government expecting them to, quote, Um, prevent the coward and the slacker from sheltering under a convenient conscience, appealing wasn't actually an easy option, but it was one that many felt compelled to do. Not all appeals were on conscience grounds, but these caused the greatest difficulties. Now, 20% of appeals on conscience grounds were allowed. These were mainly for small Christian groups who had long-held pacifist beliefs, like the Quakers. And 40% of the appeals were allowed if the men would take up non-combatant uh, duties. So this left approximately 40% of the appeals being dismissed outright by the boards. And in some districts it was reported that only 3% were allowed. And I imagine that this really expressed the opinion of the boards in those areas, the people who were serving on the boards. No alternative form of service not under military control, such as farm work, manufacturing or essential services or industries, was offered in New Zealand as in other countries. Even objectors who asked to join the Merchant Navy, which were taking cargoes of food to Britain, uh, were refused permission. So consequently, about 800 men were termed military defaulters, to be detained in the various camps for the duration of the war. At that time, of course, it was an indeterminate period of time. 
Um, I'll just make mention about the photos. Uh, They're not particularly good quality. Uh, There are a couple which I will tell you that are actually at another camp, not either Whitanui or Paiaka, but I'll mention that at the time. Otherwise, you can take it to be one or the other. The two Shannon camps opened in June 1942 with a first group of 104 detainees at Whitanui and 34 at Paiaka. The Shannon camps were a substantial part of the whole detention camp system, eventually housing about 250 of the 590 men who served in detention. Other major camps were at Strathmore and How To, which were in the central North Island, and there were a lot of smaller camps, um, one of which was a forestry camp uh, in Balmoral, North Canterbury. The Shannon sites were once part of the flax milling industry in swamps near Shannon and Foxton. All the mills had closed by the 1930s, but the New Zealand government, wanting to support local industry, bought the mill at Whitanui in 1939. At that time, it was supplying the New Zealand Woolpack and Textiles Limited of Foxton. With various buildings for the mill workers on site, this Crown-owned land appeared to offer useful work for those declared as detainees under the legislation. At the Payaka Mill site, part of the land had been used differently for research into improved varieties by the DSIR, the Department of Scientific and Industrial Research, and that had been taking place since 1927. And there were several buildings on this site as well. Dan Long, an early inmate, recalls living in tents for four months on his arrival. He and others helped to build the camp. Huts were erected by the Public Works Department as sleeping accommodation for the men. Mainly two bed huts, or two men huts, eight by ten feet, and some single huts which were six by eight feet. They were unheated and were furnished with uh, beds with a straw mattress, a pillow and old army blankets, and the only other furniture was a small table and stool. Some use was made of existing buildings to create ablution and administration blocks, a store, a small hospital and laundry. The camps were surrounded by barbed wire fences and locals recall bright lights shining on the camps at night. They were watched over by armed guards from towers at the entrance. The Shannon detainees were a diverse group. Three quarters of the inmates were termed Christian pacifists, but they did come from very diverse backgrounds and, um, and groups that they were involved with. And this could range anything from very conservative Bible-based groups through to uh, more liberal Christian socialists. Opinion is that appeals by Quakers and Christadelphians were generally accepted, but most Christian pacifists from other denominations were turned down. For instance, Colin Sawyer, a committed member of the Adventist Church and the accountant of the New Zealand Missionary School, which is now the Longburn Adventist School, had his appeal dismissed and spent years in the Shannon camps. In the Methodist Church, there was a vigorous pacifist movement and they formed a strong and vocal group among the detainees. Dan Long, 
um, that I mentioned before, arrived at Payaka from a devout Catholic family. After the war, he had a notable career as President and later General Secretary of the PSA, which is a, um, a large union um, with um, uh, still existing. Now, it's also interesting to find out that some of the men, of course, came from well-known families. The pacifism of Archibald Baxter, a Christian humanist and World War I objector, was shared by his brothers and his two sons. The elder son, Terence, spent time at Whitanui, where he was visited by his mother and his brother, the poet James K. Baxter. In Payaka, another member of a well-known family was Rex Hillary, the brother of Sir Edmund. Their father, Percival, had had fought in Gallipoli, and his diaries uh, explain the depression he suffered um, after he returned from the war. In 1938, all members of the Hillary family became active in support of the New Zealand branch of the Philosophical and Spiritual School of Radiant Living movement, which supported pacifism. Both Rex's initial appeal to the board and his second appeal to the Revision Authority in July 1945 were rejected, and he was detained in the camps for the whole of the war. Um, However, just as a side note, uh, Edmund Hillary uh, did change his mind during the war with the uh, entrance of Japan, and uh, he served in the New Zealand Air Force. This left a quarter of the men detained as being termed agnostics, humanists and others, including a small number of political objectors. Now, political objection was, a mu- was much stronger in World War I, but by World War II, and we'd had the Spanish War as, as, as well um, in the 1930s, there were, there were much pe- pe- further, uh, less people objecting on political grounds, and a lot of the left-wing thinkers were now convinced that only force would stop the rising fascism um, in Europe and military, uh, the militarism of Japan. Many of the objectors had a wide international outlook, and this was perhaps more so than the average New Zealander. Some had studied modern history and politics or had kept themselves informed of world affairs generally. Others were familiar with the works of major philosophers and theologians which informed their appeal statements. These reasons, when presented to the boards, were not considered relevant. The government began with good intentions for the camps. While the men were to be held under strict discipline, they were to be occupied with useful work and have the opportunity for a social life and educational opportunities. Alongside this, however, the time length of the sentence to be served for the duration of the war was indeterminate. Now, this was at odds with the penal system of New Zealand, where only those who had been sentenced to life without parole uh, were in a similar position. Now, this is at the how-to camp, um, which was in the central North Island, but I think it's just such a great photo that um, I wanted to include it. And, and probably indicative of other camps as well. The daily routine of the camp was certainly less attractive than army life. A large degree of isolation was imposed on the men, which on reflection could be seen as hard to understand. 
Now, leave could be given for family emergencies, um, but supervised visits were only allowed by family members, and this did not include children. And, of course, a lot of these men were relatively young and they were married with, with children. Visits might also be infrequent. Over the years, the men could be used from camp, moved from camp to camp or to prison, depending on a circumstance, often without notification to the families. Given distance and the inaccessibility of the camps and wartime petrol restrictions, families were not always in the position to travel uh, to visit. Elsie and Norman Bennett, one of the detainees, daughter, was born soon after Norman became an inmate at Whitanui. He recalls that Elsie had to take the train from Whanganui to Palmerston North, leave the baby with friends, continue on to Shannon and bike about four and a half kilometres to the camp. Locals confirmed seeing many relatives um, biking to the camp to visit because there was no you know, public transport available to them. Detainee Morris Clark also remembers the difficulty of being visited by his wife. She would make the trip about every two months. This involved catching the train to Shannon, then walking for about one and a half hours with a pushchair to the camp for a one-hour visit, and then returning the same way and arriving home in the dark. The men were allowed to write two short letters a week to relatives and one a fortnight to a friend. All letters were strictly censored, and you know it was, it was noted that when they were censored with those bold black lines that often much more of the letter was unintelligible as well, uh, given what had been taken out. Daily newspapers were prohibit, prohibited, and articles that were considered submersive, um, uh, sub- subversive sorry, uh, were cut from magazines. It's hard to believe that this high degree of isolation really was justified, and it did cause um, considerable resentment, as you can imagine. In a letter from Payaka in 1943, detainee Wolf Foote wrote, to quote, You are the only friend that does not feel a lowering of this social status when writing to society's outcasts. The sense of being cut off from society's generally, the feeling that no one save one's own folk cares a tinker's curse is not exactly best for one's peace of mind after two years in detention. There was strict discipline. In October 1941, Leonard Greenberg was appointed Controller General of defaulted detention camps, and he had the ultimate authority. Then there were camp supervisors in each camp who could impose punishments for minor breaches. And this was usually solitary confinement or a bread and water diet. And that was often for, um, as I say, quite minor things like refusing to work on a particular day for some reason. And then daily life was controlled by the guards, termed patrolmen, Um, and by means of random whistles, checks and roll calls. This is another one from the how-to camp, um, which I'll just talk about. More serious offenders could be transferred to how-to, which was sort of called the punishment camp. 
Its red compound, and that's the row of huts that you can see there, was a line of huts where men were confined for 23 and a half hours a day. And numerous men from the Shannon camps were recorded as being sent there for a period of time. Other serious charges were heard in local magistrates' court and sentences might be imposed in Mount Eden or Mount Crawford. There was naturally resistance to this regime and apparently arbitrary punishment because it would all depend on what was reported and perhaps what your supervisor would do. And part of the problem was the staff. The controller Greenberg wrote, to quote, staffing was of more concern to the authorities than many of the difficulties involving inmates. Staff were difficult to recruit, there were no married quarters and their living conditions were little better than the detainees. And they too suffered from boredom and isolation. Worse, most had no experience of the role and little or no training and often their unreasonable decisions inflamed minor incidents. At the Shannon camps, 11 disgruntled employees were dismissed, three resigned and then the complete staff tendered their resignation and pursued industrial action at one stage. The how-to camp was experiencing similar protests and the solution was to transfer the striking staff from how-to in Strathmore to Shannon. And that was to improve it. The government objectives for the camp included the provision of useful work. Inmates generally accepted, you know, working to make the camps run and things like cooking, as you can see these ones in the kitchen, cleaning, growing food, etc. However, the main complaint by both staff and inmates of the Shannon camps was the futility of the work in the flax fields. A Payaka overseer resigned and described the work schemes as the greatest example of mismanagement and inefficiency ever known in the history of New Zealand. Some inmates also took a strong stand. In February 1944, two men finally refused to work and went on a hunger strike to demand changed working conditions. Will Foote wrote that, The second half of my sentence was spent at Payaka, a small camp of some 80 men. The main work was hoeing weeds in the flax plantation. The main casualty was the flax. It's likely that weeding was the only work available because the government actually contracted out the planting and the cutting of the flax. So really this was the, the one useful thing to do in between those two stages. Other inmates complained more of the lack of freedom to do something useful for the community. During 1943, they offered to clean up after a flood but were not considered safe enough to be let out. Um, some others did recall, though, that they had some outside work um, on a dairy farm near Shannon, in the onion-growing areas of Opiki, and some remembered bagging coal at the Shannon uh, railway station. It's fair to say that there was some efforts to encourage useful recreation. Um, photographs from Whitanui, um probably illicitly taken because, uh, like with soldiers in the war zone, uh, cameras were forbidden. Uh, 
They show uh, sporting activities and scenes from drama productions produced by the inmates. As flax mills were positioned close to the river, the men recalled being allowed um, to swim in the Manawatu River on occasions too. The drama productions were mainly contemporary plays with social and um, political themes. They provided useful activity for some very talented people really across the whole range of things that were needed to produce a play. One of the directors was Rodney Kennedy, a Quaker in the camps from 1942 to 1946. On release, he returned home to Dunedin and from 1971 was director of the very successful Globe Theatre there. Even the programmes for the plays, some which are now held in archives, were of a professional standard. One of the artists was Albert Bollard, who was later a frequent exhibitor um, with the New Zealand Academy of Fine Arts and overseas. Other men pursued individual study programmes. Books in the larger camps were supplied by the National Library Service, but men moved to Payaka from larger camps noted that most books there were privately owned and just shared around. Will Foote recalls reading such books as Basic Writings of Sigmund Freud. Dan Long reports reading War and Peace, bills such as Quest for Security in New Zealand, and a textbook, Religion and the Rise of Capitalism. Um, I think this sort of gives you an idea of the sort of men that were there and, and what books they would take with them and the topics and, that interested them. And so you can imagine, given whatever circumstances you went there with, if this was your reading material, you, you're going to be influenced as well to a degree. Um, now, Wilf uh, Foote also uh, had a programme of self-improvement, which he, he practised, uh, devised by himself, and he did public speaking out in the yards. Um, he usually had an audience of, of others that happened to be around about at the time. He also took 10-mile walks on a Sunday. Now, I presume that meant that he, he worked out what would give him 10, ten miles of, um, of distance, and he played league Scott soccer, tennis and cricket. So he obviously uh, was a man who was uh, quite self-reliant and could keep himself busy. Now this photo is possibly how-to camp. It's an unidentified um, camp. Not all inmates managed so well, however. Problems of an indeterminate sentence began to appear by 1943, I suppose by then people were realising that perhaps the war was not going to end quickly. The term wire happy was used for those who suffered depression and mental illness. The years of separation from families was beginning to tell, particularly on the married men. They were aware that families were suffering financially when they could only send home six to eight shillings from their meagre pay. Wives with one children were paid 30 shillings a week extra from Social Security, with more for larger families. But on a rough calculation, they received only about a third of the average working man's wage at the time. Wives often sought employment, but could be discriminated against. 
Detainee Walter Lowry spent part of his four years in detention in the Shannon camps. Now, on release, he worked for 14 years for Corso, and probably if you're a person of a certain age, you might remember Corso, um, which was a um, New Zealand organisation for relief overseas. And in 1943, Wolf Foote wrote in a letter to a friend why his brother... Oh, sorry, I've I've jumped. (laughs) I apologise. Anyway, so we're back to Walter Lowry, who he wrote that it is almost impossible for those who did not experience the tensions of the time to gauge the intense patriotism engendered or the viciousness against those who opposed the war. My wife was forced from her job with the Dunedin Electricity Showman showroom by the RSA, insisting that she be sacked because I was a military defaulter. There were also numerous examples of several brothers being inmates at the same time, which left no family to support ageing and ill parents. Some detainees began to doubt the validity of the decision they made at such cost to themselves and their family, but dreaded disappointing loyal supporters. In 1943, Wolf Foote wrote in a letter to a friend why his brother decided to leave the camp to join the medical corps. I quite agreed with his decision that it was better to get out than have a serious nervous breakdown. Similarly, in a family letter in 1945, James K. Baxter feared that his brother Terence was, to quote, permanently scarred mentally by life in the camp. There were several attempted suicides um, over the years as well. Other inmates took another course, escape. It was really successful. Some stories of escapes became local legends, though, and were talked about, I I guess, and I no doubt joked about as well. In 1943, it was was said that ten men from Whitanui were reputed to have gone to a film in Foxton and then returned later in the evening. George Laird cycled to Palmerston North to see his wife, and others got out to post uncensored mail. There was also Tahiti Jack... Now, he was named after his capture in Tahiti and return to New Zealand. When he lost his appeal, um, I, I, I believe that he had offered to go in the Merchant Navy, and he wasn't. So he, decide, he said his reason for sailing to South America, or trying to sail to South America, was so that he could prove that he knew about boats. Um, and he, uh, but he had to stop in Tahiti he was found there and returned to New Zealand. Now, he was then, um, at, at one stage, put into Payaka and was judged to be prejudicial to good order and discipline. And he was sentenced to a term in prison. Now, the Manawatu Standard reported his case in the courts there and he said he was protesting and obviously causing... Um, discipline issues, Uh, he was protesting against the lack of study facilities there compared to Strathmore, where he had been. Now, Payaka was one of the smaller camps, so that that may be why why that was the difference. Other cases had no lighter side. One Payaka inmate was at large for some time, but was arrested on his arrival at the church for his wedding and sentenced to confinement in Hautu. 
Even more serious was the fate of those who remained at liberty for long periods, over two years, but were recaptured near the end of the war. They were given a prison sentence of equivalent lengths of time and thus remained in prison for a considerable period after the camps had closed. All this added up to mounting dissatisfaction with the whole detention system, and this was recognised by Greenberg as early as December 1943 and acknowledged by the Minister of Justice, Rex Mason. However, the government, having spent time and money on the camps, were in no mood to develop an alternative system and faced the resulting public outcry. It was also fully occupied with the war at home and um, overseas, of course. By 1945, though, it was finally admitted that many genuine conscientious objectors had now been in detention for up to four years. In June, a newly formed revision authority was appointed to review earlier appeals. This became politicised, with the opposition registering strong, strong objections. Terms like pure, unadulterated shirkers were used in parliamentary debates and there was public pressure not to close the camps until the men serving overseas had returned. And if you read the article last Saturday, I did, there was a quote from um, the mayor in Palmerston North at the time, Mansford, who, um, who adamantly said that Palmerston North did not con- um, condone letting the men out of the camps until everybody had returned and... Um, and being rehabilitated within New Zealand. And he, he spoke for the whole of Palmerston North, he said. Some men remained in camps even after foreign nationals were released from internment. So uh, there were other camps for them, of course. Despite this, though, a stream of detainees were quietly released, typically with about 60 to £80 pounds and a rail ticket. Will Foote wrote... In October 1945, I walked out the gates of Payaka with some £80 in my pocket, the fruit of three years, ten months' labour at one and threepence a day. He went on to a career as an educationalist, author and peace activist. Nevertheless, decisions of the authority still seemed arbitrary. In January 1946, Dan Long was released after four years' detention on compassionate grounds. But his brother Joe remained at Whitanui until the end. The last duty of his gang was to demolish the barbed wire fences. Even at the end of 1945, there was further difficulty. The indeterminate sentence... While the men remained in the camps, the official date for the end of the war was debated in New Zealand courts. The Shannon camps finally closed in July 1946, some ten months after hostilities ended. When the men were finally released, they were still subject to sanctions. They were not allowed to vote in the 1946 general election, um, though the right to do so was restored in 1951. Teachers were debarred from service until the end of 1948 and the contracts of some university staff in Auckland were not renewed. And there were numerous um, anecdotal evidence that um, men were refused their old jobs back after they uh, returned. A number departed for positions in the, the more liberal atmosphere of the United Kingdom, 
The commercial orchards of the riverside community in Motueka, um, which was established by a group of conscientious objectors, provided a model for others as well who became self-employed and went into horticulture. While some men were permanently scarred by their experiences in the camps, others went on to have fulfilling lives and careers. Many did not change their views and became active in the peace movement and campaigned against issues such as nuclear testing in the Pacific and participation in the Vietnam War. Now this is just to illustrate that point. Um, this is Archibald Barrington and Merle Highland beside their peace caravan in the 1950s. Um, Barrington was a Methodist lay preacher and um, he was a founder of the Christian Pacifist Society in the 1930s and a conscientious objector during World War II. In 1947, Barrington and his family moved to the Riverside community um, and he and companions like Highland here toured the South Island three times in the 1950s with their peace caravan. So he was a committed you could have said he was a committed conscientious objector from the beginning of the war and certainly maintained that stand. The camps, however, cast a long shadow and New Zealand's treatment of its conscientious objectors was notably punitive as compared to Australia, Canada, Great Britain and the USA. One unnamed local recalled the detainees were branded, to quote, gutless wonders, traitors and communists just because they obeyed God's commands. These feelings lingered after the war. Even people who were born after the war report of being teased by classmates because their father was a conchie. Others looking back are aware that their father's decision remained divisive in their families for years, never discussed and resolved. The camps themselves were quickly dismantled and have largely been forgotten or even known about. The only relics marking the former sites are some concrete surroundings on private property. Due to the work of Margaret Tate, however, Whitanui is recognised as a heritage site on the Horofenua District Council's district plan. Now, just to end up, I just thought I would... Um, just highlight just a couple of those people I've mentioned in the talk. Now, this is Norman Bennett, who went on to a, a career in newspapers. He was a Christian pacifist, and his view of um, the war and killing was based on the Christian belief that thou shalt not kill. He was interned in the camps from 1942 until the end of the war, and his appeal on conscience grounds was not allowed, even though at the time he was working as a school teacher in the Quaker school in Wanganui. He didn't become a Quaker until shortly after the end of the war. His son recalls his father didn't talk a lot about his time in the camps, but he learned that the men spent a lot of time doing boring, meaningless work and being made to stick to the rules by the, the um, screws, as they were termed. Free time was spent in making things, like this uh, doll's bed. Uh, he had children as well, and that is still in the, fa in the Bennett family. Um, and participating in drama productions, and this was something, an interest that he carried on after the war as well. His son also recalls that at the, as the son of a conchie, growing up was quite difficult. 
Some neighbours were returned servicemen who regarded his father with contempt. And there were small things like not being invited to birthday parties and the cruelty of child to child that made life quite difficult. But he also remembers that his father made lifelong friends in the camps and uh, he, was, he was, grew up in Auckland and said that they met frequently and that was part of his growing up, was mixing with these families and these men who were best friends with his father. His father's actions also influenced him through his life. Uh, he didn't take part in military drill at secondary school once again, if you're of a certain age, we remember the boys being compelled to go out and put on uniforms and walk around with bits of wood, I think. Um, and uh, he also was later involved in anti-nuclear ban the bomb marches in Vietnam War protests. And this is Morris Clark. Now, he was a Methodist and Christian pacifist who signed a covenant in 1936 to renounce war as a means of settling international disputes and to take no part either as an active combatant or any non-combatant role. Later, he recalled the strain his decision to appeal put on his wife with three small children. To quote... No income except for a pittance from social welfare, the criticism of others, and the disgrace of having a husband who refused military service and was jailed behind barbed wire. Even the kids copped it. Your father's a jailbird. His wife suffered a breakdown after the war. Don't know whether you can read this, but this was the appeal he actually put into the board. when he was first called up. Now, his appeal was actually allowed if he would take up non-combatant duties. But, of course, he refused because this was part of the covenant that he had signed in 1936. They actually sent him to Trentham Camp and told him to put on a uniform. He refused to do so, and at that point he was sentenced as a military defaulter to detention for the duration of the war. He was finally released in June 1945, almost three years after being called up. On release, he was manpowered, so there were some further restrictions on the men. Um, He was uh, manpowered to essential industries for one year. And after that, he tried to return to his former insurance company uh, where he had worked and had a successful career. They refused to take him, but he eventually found work back in the insurance industry and, um, and continued a successful career for the rest of his life. But it was not easy in those first years out. So that's the end of the talk. I hope you've found it as interesting as, as I did and, um, and certainly uh, something to think about and pause for thought uh, and may well be a part of our history that you didn't know, even if it was just that very locally we were part of this system in New Zealand as well. Thank you. Jill. Well, first of all, thank you very much. Um, a couple of questions. Were, for example, the Christian pacifists allowed to meet for services of worship? 
Yes, they did, and they did have, um, there was one mention of, uh, more than one, I'm sure, but I did read one mention of a Methodist minister who was very sympathetic, used to travel from the Wairarapa over. And I believe they also had, um, uh, they also met as groups themselves, uh, like-minded people, and, and set up their own Bible reading groups and whatever, but minister, if, if that one Methodist minister visited that I read about, then there would have no doubt been others. Thank you. But then going into the political sphere, was there the opportunity for people with a political focus able to meet to discuss their ideas, their concerns? I don't know. I, I think they possibly would have... I, th- this is just me thinking, so it would need more research. But I think they would consider somebody coming in to talk about that would be subversive. Um, I, I'm absolutely positive, as a group of men living together uh, in close confinement, that they would have influenced each other and had discussions amongst themselves. Yes. Um, look, I, have, I haven't really researched that, but I do think it's interesting. I noticed that Margaret had made, um, had, had sort of said that wasn't the focus of this talk as well. Uh, but it was the Labour government, and it was quite surprising because the Labour government had never, uh, this was not a stand that, that was equated with the Labour government, which had come into power in 1935. I think I'm right there. Um, so it, it was quite an unusual step for them to do. And when they put... And, and, of course, some of their MPs in Parliament actually had been conscientious objectors in World War I, which, once again... But apparently there was only one dissenter when they voted as to whether they would set up these camps, and that was Mark Briggs, that uh, many of you might have heard about as a, as a um, World War I conscientious objector who was a local man... Um, lived in Palmerston North after World War One, so uh, one it looked like uh, I, I suspect, without 100% knowing, that they were swayed very much by public opinion. Uh, we were still, you know, England was still home. We were very much tied to the UK, um, and through via that through into Europe. And I think public sentiment was for the war. Uh, and these people who took the strong stand, while there were other people who might not have wanted to do anything or raise their hand, these people um, were sort of vilified uh, by those who believed very strongly that it was our duty at that time. But, um, but it's an interesting topic. I, th- I think it would be one, particularly from that Labour point of view, uh, as to why they would bow to that pressure uh, and do this. Richard Sneddon was the Prime Minister at the time, wasn't he? Richard Sneddon. Uh, no, Richard, no. Sneddon. Peter Fraser, you're right. I didn't think it was Sneddon, but... But also, he was the Prime Minister at the time, but he himself, or his father, was a conscientious objector. Mm. And that's why he was Yeah, and, and, they, and they still... Yeah, apparently there were four or something, four MPs who were conscientious objectors in World War One, but they still put it through. John? Much later, when I was um, 
associated with Dan Mullen. He indicated to us that while he put his objection status in on religious grounds, I think it's a very strong Catholic, but um, in fact it was his Irish heritage, and he mentioned that a number of other of the objectors actually were refusing to take King Philip and actually uh. sign up in the British and, and have to sign a loyalty oath to the English king. Right. So that, uh, the Irish and the IRA, so the Irish uh, issue was quite strong amongst the yeah, that's that. That is very interesting. Yep, and that could have been a case. Yes. Um, what do you know about their reaction in the uh, treatment of conscious objectors over different parts of New Zealand? Because my father was a conscious objector in Christchurch and wasn't subjected to the same yes I I do think that as they say punishments were arbitrary and I think that really seemed to show perhaps on um, who who the staff were as to what they reported what your um, camps uh, supervisor was like so that may have influenced how the camps were run but also the bigger camps were in the North Island and the smaller camps, it may have been easier, it may have been seen that they were, with the bigger camps, that they were put them under stricter discipline or whatever, I don't know. I was wondering whether variations in the legal profession about their rulings on these cases and with parts of the country. Not that I know of at all. I think it was whatever... Um, was deemed appropriate by that person at the time, whether that was in the local magistrate's court, and uh, which d- did, of course, happen uh, with prison sentences because they went to the courts. But the otherwise, I think it was standard throughout the country, but they could be interpreted differently by different people. Hi. Um, I just happened to answer this while <laughs> I came up to ask a question here, so I've missed Whereabouts was the, um, the location of the one at uh, Camp in um, Shannon, and where was Fitio Nui? Right, so um, Fitio Nui and Payaka were both on or just off the Shannon-Foxton Road. So, uh, yeah, Fitio Nui was on the road and uh, Payaka was not far away on Springs Road. Thanks. 
Yes. No, well, the, my objective was when I started um, filming, I had always, I, my husband and I bought the car in 1972. Now, at that stage, we knew it was a conscientious objective's camp, but because he was a dairy farmer and every blade of grass counted, uh, so I never sort of started digging, but once the cows had gone, I, I uncovered their um, spots. Uh, well, yeah, I uncovered their, um, like the hospital foundations, um, the wash house foundations, the abrusion block foundations, and little other bits, and also their pit holes where they buried treasure. But my objective at that stage was to make the Horokamua District Council aware of it and ask for it to be acknowledged with the plaque at the end of the drive. Um, initially, uh, they responded not at all goody-goody, but then there was a change of councils and it just got lost. And then um, one day, I had, by this time, had a lot of photographs. And we had a new hall built at Motua, and uh, we had an official opening, so I took my photos along. And a um, district council was at that gathering, and somehow I had another here, and Margaret Tate met up. And it was with Margaret Tate's um, help that we managed to get this far with it. But no, never had one had the, the um, plant put up at the end of the drive. So, but with my husband's passing, um, I sold the property and, as I say, it's um, all those foundations that I found have probably been gone. Yeah. Sorry, have you had any involvement from the defence force, um, from, a, from a historical perspective? Look, I... Um, I don't, I don't, I don't think Margaret particularly went down that way, but um, she knew it's yeah, and and of course it was more a government camp rather than, you know, it, it wasn't like it was run by the army or the armed forces or anything. So, uh, <clears throat> yeah, it's um, lots, lots more that could be uncovered about it. Yes. So where did the guards from? No, they were, as I say, they were largely untrained. I think it was whoever they could get. I mean, if people were looking for work, I imagine during wartime they were possibly older, um, perhaps, uh, because they hadn't gone away. But, uh, and, and obviously some were not suited for this work. That can happen in many, many occupations, can't it? But um, they also didn't receive, plainly, very good training in making the work uh, easier for themselves as well as anything. Perhaps they really had no experience or, or desire to be there themselves. Yes? Um, there is a... The sap was the engine near's core that uh, based here in Armstrong North, and uh, they have a monthly... Um, lecture on aspects of uh, military history. The chap who spoke uh, in the Wimbledon meeting is uh, from the Massive Defence Studies mm. uh, area and he is doing a paper on conscription 
and the differences between construction in New Zealand to particularly to Australia and Canada. Mm. And um, in his lecture, he talked quite a bit about the conscientious objector issue. So there is, and so the principles in that sense is, is aware of this. Yes. And is part of the, uh, the process of uncovering. Mm. Yeah. Has there ever been any attempt to apologise? Not that I know of. But I, I honestly, I, I can't actually answer that question. It's a really good question, an interesting one. But I don't, I don't know whether anyone else has ever heard of an apology. But I, it's not something I'm been aware of. Thank you. And just the last one here. Yes. Um, one of my school friends was not allowed to come and stay in our house because I grew up in the Nelson area and I know it was always an unusual place, put it that way, when you drove past. <laughs> they were different yes. as, as much as I remember. Um, yeah. So thank you for coming, everybody. You're listening to Manawatu People's Radio, Te Reo Irarangi o Ngā Tangata o Manawatu. You've been listening to our recording of Wire Happy, the Shannon Objectors Camps 1942 to 1946. It was recorded at the Palmerston North City Library on Wednesday the 1st of March. If you would like to hear this again or share it with a friend, you can find it along with the other four episodes in this series of talks at our website www.mpr.nz forward slash show forward slash specials If you enjoy this NPR podcast please consider subscribing Our podcasts are available on all major podcasting platforms Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts and Spotify as well as the accessmedia.nz app Support this show and others like it by giving a donation for more information, go to www.mpr.nz forward slash donate.